Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is Kyle Willoughby. Hello! And this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, A Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today, we are talking about A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time is about 13-year-old Meg Murray. She is a difficult child. She struggles in school, doesn't have friends, and is always angry. Uh, Four years ago, her scientist father mysteriously disappeared, and though many around her think he's not coming back, her family hasn't given up hope. After meeting three mysterious beings, Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch, she finds out that her father is alive, but trapped in another part of the universe. Da, da, da. These beans whisk her away with her prodigy younger brother, Charles Wallace, Hello. and their new friend, Calvin, through a wrinkle in time to new parts of the universe so they can save her father. Beep, beep, beep. The movie was released in the United States on February 26th. I think it had later release dates for other parts of the world. And it was based on the book written by Madeline L. Engle, and that was published in 1962. The movie is directed by Ava DuVernay, and it stars Storm Reid, Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, Levi Miller, Derek McCabe, and Chris Pine. So a bunch of unknowns. Yeah, a bunch of people you never heard of. I have a question for you later about how much you think Mindy, Mindy Kaling got paid <laughs> for, for how few lines she had to say in that movie. Um, Kyle, what are you going to be talking about? Man, I picked a doozy for this one. I <laughs> I mean, I'm covering the history quote. Uh, mostly what I'm going to try and explain is what is exactly a tesseract, Okay, which is well, confusing. That is what... Meg is whisked through when she travels to other parts of the universe. It's called the Tesseract, yes. And and a wrinkle in time implies how they're traveling. And I looked up maybe trying to explain theoretical theoretically what a wrinkle in time is. And I kind of get it, but it's just it's really confusing. Physics is hard. Oh yeah. <laughs> I also looked up quantum entanglement, because that's something that they um invoke in the movie, which was not a thing around Madeline. Uh, Langle's time, at least not a very popular theory at that time. Um, once again, also very confusing. Might touch on it, but it would, it's Ooh. like back of the cereal box version of that. What are you going to talk about, Claire? Oh, I'm going to talk about Madeline Elingle and Ava DuVernay and making this movie. That's, so just as complicated. That is very complicated. It's This this episode is a long time in coming because we've talked about Wrinkle in Time in other episodes right. a lot. Especially in history segments because it's such a... Um, uh, very formative of the uh, uh, yeah. I was going to say in the YA genre, Wrinkle in Time is something that always comes up when you talk about its early years. Yeah, and we bo- also both received this book from our mother, and we're going to get into what our mothers thought of this. Get into book. our moms. We're going to get we're going to get into the history of our moms and and a Wrinkle in Time. So that'll be exciting. Well, Kyle, take it away. Let's let's talk some physics. Yeah, uh, let's I hope talk I can keep up some physics. Well, <sighs> Tesseract isn't exactly physics, but. We'll start with what is a tesseract. Okay. It's a blue box that the Avengers are trying to keep away from Loki <laughs> in whichever movie that was. I forget. I can't remember if that was actually Avengers or if that was Thor. It's one of them. Okay. It apparently it contains an infinity stone. It's also a sweet British me- prog metal gent band. Jesus. 
They sound like that. Pretty cool. Okay. <laughs> I've seen them in concert, and they're awesome. They're one of my favorite, not one of my favorite bands, but I do like them. Um, so it's all those things, but it's actually so much more. So in both the book and the film of A Wrinkle in Time, the main characters are able to travel vast distances in space using something called the Tesseract. Sometimes they just call it Tesserine. Um, but what is a Tesseract actually, and is it a real thing, and can it be theoretically used to travel massive distances faster than the speed of light? The reality is that a Tesseract is a real thing, on paper at least, but no, you cannot use it to travel through space and time. Would we one day be able to travel through space and time with it? Unfortunately, no. It, a Tesseract is not that sort of thing. It's, it's pretty interesting, but it's not going to be able to somehow propel us to Alpha Centauri in the future. Mm. Um, what a Tesseract actually is, though, is almost as mind-boggling as traveling faster than light. And in some ways, it's even more mind-boggling than, fa- than traveling faster than light. So in the book A Wrinkle in Time, the characters are asked to uh, envision the first dimension. And I'm just going to read straight from, from the text of, of A Wrinkle in Time. So Charles said, what is the first dimension? Well, a line. Okay, and the second dimension? Well, you'd square the line. A flat square would be in the second dimension. And the third? Well, you'd square the second dimension. Then the square wouldn't be flat anymore. It would have a bottom and sides and a top. And the fourth? Well, I guess if you want to put it into mathematical terms, you'd square the square. But you can't take a pencil and draw it the way you can with the first three. I know it's got something to do with Einstein and time. I guess maybe you could call it the the fourth dimension time. That's right, Charles said. Good girl. Okay, then for the fifth dimension, you'd square the fourth, wouldn't you? I guess so. Well, the fifth dimension's a tesseract. And they kind of end it there, as for the explanation of what is a tesseract. That's as cool as that is, and it is yeah, a really cool idea. Yeah, and it idea. made sense to me when I was a kid. I remember that. Yeah. In simple terms, a tesseract is a four-dimensional analog of a cube. Do you get it? No. I didn't either when I read that. So <laughs> to go a little more in-depth with this and what a Tesseract is, we're going to go back to a book written in 1884 called Flatland, um, a book that was supposedly authored by someone named A Square. So Flatland, we've talked about Flatland before in this podcast really? as well, though I forget in what capacity. Yeah. Okay. Um, Flatland was a book written by a man named Edwin Abbott Abbott who lived in Victorian England, and it was a satirical novel that was supposed to be a fairly scathing critique of the class system of Victorian England. Um, but that is not what it would be remembered for. It would be more immortalized for, for its explanations of dimensions. Now, Flatland concerns a square living in a world that is totally flat. Does okay. Does sound familiar to you? No, but keep going. All right. So this Flatland is inhabited by different shapes and line segments. A square, is a, the character, is eventually visited by a traveler from another dimension named a sphere. So mm-hmm. a sphere tries to show a square the limited perspective of his understanding by taking him out of Flatland to his crazy third dimension of up where a square is suddenly able to see flatland from a new perspective um now what does this have to do with tesseracts so this is a little this is a little uh uh analogy that i watched carl sagan do on an episode of um the cosmos from you know back in the 70s it's really interesting i want you to imagine that you are a square 
and you live in Flatland. Are you imagining this, mm-hmm. Claire? I you're, am. You're square. My eyes closed and everything. You're living in Flatland. Everything is completely flat. You only live in two dimensions. You have width and you have length, but you don't have height. You only live in those two dimensions. That being the case, you understand forward and backward, left and right, but you have absolutely no concept of up and down. You can't see it. You can't even really infer that it's there. It's not something that matters to you. You can't experience it in any way. Right. So no up and down. Now let's say that a three-dimensional object, a sphere, has decided to say hello to you. The sphere hovers above you, up, which is in that third dimension, a dimension that you cannot know about. The sphere says, hello, I'm a sphere from the third dimension. Nice to meet you. Um, And you, as a flat square, hear this disembodied voice, but you have no idea where it is coming from. And you think that you've gone crazy. So the sphere, in an attempt to assure you that you are not crazy, comes down into flatland to show you that it is real. So if you were a two-dimensional being, how would you imagine seeing a three-dimensional object like a sphere move into a two-dimensional world? How, what would that look like? Like something I'd never seen before. Well, like I wouldn't I, – I don't know. Tell me how it would look. So, I, I imagine it would be otherworldly. You're li- it's, it, it is, but it's a, it, it, is, it is explainable. So you're living in a flat surface. The first part of the sphere you would see would be the, just a dot, just the first part of that sphere that's touching that flat surface. So right. just a little dot. But as that sphere moves through that flat surface, you would see that dot expand, 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 expand um, until the sphere is at its greatest circumference, uh, had moved through flatland, and it would resemble resemble a circle. And then as it moved through through that flatland, that circle would get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So it starts out as a dot that expands to the maximum circumference of whatever that sphere is, and then it would get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay. So do you kind of get I like think this so. idea of like being a two-dimensional being and seeing something in a third dimension? Right, right. So wait, my quick question, that sphere, would I, it would still be two-dimensional when I was seeing it though, right? Yeah, you couldn't see it I in wouldn't three know dimensions. It, exactly, I you got would, it. You would see this little dot that expanded into a big circle and then expanded into smaller circles and then a dot and then just vanished into thin air. Right, okay. Um, so, and, But it would... Yeah, and is that that's not the sh- it's not a different shape. It's just you're seeing it. You're you were actually seeing it from smaller get bigger and then back to smaller. You were yeah because you can only see in two dimensions. You were watching a you were seeing where that like slices of that sphere as it passes through your flat got it, world. Got it. That's why it starts as a small dot, and as the sphere moves through, it gets a little wider. It's like mm-hmm. oh, you know, a ball is wider at its at its circumference circumference, and then gets smaller as it moves through. So you as a square are still really confused about all this dimension nonsense, this up and down. So finally, the sphere in frustration comes from underneath you, knocks you up above flatland into a dimension that you never knew existed, into up. You are now an up, which is something that you had no idea existed before. And from up above flatland, you can see down into all your shape friends, into their little flat houses thus gaining a new perspective on space and dimensions. Now, when you finally land in front of one of your shape friends, say your buds with a triangle, uh, you seem to just appear out of nowhere, out of thin air, because remember that they can't see up or up or down. Right. You weren't there, then suddenly, boom, you just pop, like a, you popped out of it. Like a god. Like a god. And you're trying to explain to your friends like where you were, and they're like, they're like, well, can you point in this dimension? And you're like, you're like, can you point us to this dimension? And you're like, no, I can't. I physically cannot 
There's mm. no way I can show you what this is or point to it. It's not it's not forward, backward, and it's not left or right. It's up or down, which they have no no knowledge of. So a square exists in two dimensions. If you take that square and extend at right angles up, you would have a three-dimensional cube, you know, like a mm-hmm. six-sided die right. is a cube. Um, now, you can draw the approximation of a cube on paper in two dimensions. You ever do that in school when you're a kid? Oh, like, my gosh. It? You know, taking notes in class, just drawing cubes all over cubes that are paper. All, exactly. But th- they're not actually cubes. They're a two-dimensional version of a cube. Right. They're not actually – if you were to measure all the, all the sides of that cube, they wouldn't all come out equally because it's, it's a, kind of a shadow of a, right. of a cube. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. So let's so but what if we took that cube, that actual three-dimensional cube, and we took its right angles and vertices and extended them into a fourth dimension where every side is now a cube? Or to try and put it simply, you can fold squares to create a cube. According to geometry and math, you can then fold cubes into another dimension to create a hypercube, also known as a tesseract. Makes sense. Tesseract is a fourth dimensional cube, essentially. Right. A square, a cube is an, is an extension of a square into a third dimension. A tesseract is an extension of a cube into a fourth dimension. So we li- live in a three dimensional world. We do live in a three dimensional so world. So I, if I could see the fourth dimension, it would be like I would be that square. You would Who be that would be like squ- bumped up. All uh, of a, a sudden, could see a fourth dimension. I um. Remember we were talking about people who have out-of-body experiences? Yeah. Maybe, like, that's what it's like to be in the fourth dimension. Maybe, but that is just, like, out-of-body experiences a lot of times are people, like, looking down from no, above them I, and stuff. I, I know it's not. But it's, I was trying to think of a way that you would be in the fourth dimension. Well, that's the funny thing about it. that it's it's You have a lot of trouble visualizing and understanding it, and that's okay because it is literally impossible for us to grasp what a fourth dimensional tesseract right. can look like until a fourth dimensional thing pops me up into the fourth dimension yeah, and then and gives you it. like and you get and you still don't quite understand it but you get more of an under, a more of an understanding than you have now we literally you, you, i can't wrap my mind around it the idea of folding a cube into the thing that is right. next in that and do it into Ooh, a tesseract boy. yeah and then you think of start thinking of the universe yeah it's I, scary i it went down a intense. rabbit hole <laughs> doing this research <laughs> Um, so it's it's literally impossible for us to grasp what a fourth dimensional tesseract can look like. But we can but we know that it can exist because it checks out on paper and geometry. We just can never actually visualize it. The best thing we can do, similar to drawing a cube on two-dimensional paper, we can create a three-dimensional shadow, quote unquote, of what a tesseract would look like to us in, in three dimensions. And Yes, it's weird looking, and don't worry, we'll provide some links <laughs> as to what, you know, the 3D models of oh, man. of the shadow I of can't a fourth wait dimensional geometric pattern. I unfortunately don't. So, no, a tesseract wouldn't allow you to travel great distances, but I think what Madeline Langle was trying to do in that book was say that, like, you can step out of this your third dimension into a fourth dimension right. and thus go. Well, a lot of the book. Travel through space. Is the characters having to open their minds to things on different universes that the human mind really isn't capable of seeing. Yeah. She just has to accept. Yeah. That like this, like when we communicate, we don't need to talk. Yeah. You can just sense my emotions. Yeah. You know. 
I liked um, those but, creatures. <laughs> they they were amazing. But I feel like that's – but throughout the book, even when they're on the planet with it, yeah. you know, it's um, a new way of thinking that she always has to open her mind to. She and Calvin and Charles Wallace are always having to open their mind to new to ideas. To these new ideas and, and new perspectives. New, and, yeah, new dimensions. And even when they can't – and it says they can't always fully grasp it, but they grasp it just enough. Yeah. And they can't even explain it. Or when they're trying to describe to creatures on other planets – Things that they understand, those other creatures aren't able to understand that because they're talking or they're seeing things in a different way. Yeah, sort of like a tesseract. We can understand it and we can grasp the idea of it, but we can't actually ever see one or or, or experience it. And you described it so well, Kyle, but I imagine that if someone who could see a tesseract was trying to explain it to me, they might not be able to do it very well. This is true. This is that's why the sphere eventually just had to knock a square up into the sky yeah. so it oh, could see. I hope that happens to me one day. <laughs> I'm sitting here waiting <laughs> to be fourth knocked dimensional into a fourth dimension. sphere. Just <laughs> knock me over just for a minute. I want to see it. Now, an actual wrinkle in space time, like what they describe in the book, uh, that's something different. That's called an Einstein Rosen bridge or mm-hmm. a wormhole. And Ooh, like in what's that Chris Nolan movie? Like an interstellar. Interstellar yeah. actually is a really also a really good example of of an Einstein Rosen bridge wormhole. And that's that's different than a tesseract. Tesseract is just a geometric shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the ideas of Einstein Rosen bridges are too complicated really for me to explain in an in-depth way. And I feel like most people know the explanation, but I'll give it anyway. It's in this book, actually. But a straight line between two points is not the quickest way to travel between those points. Mm -hmm. If you can then somehow fold that line so the tips touch and then bore a hole through them. You can you can travel right like a, little, a long a distance shortcut. very short yeah it's a short a way cut. to shorten the road yeah a way to shorten your your travel across these vast that's, space distances that's the three dimensional way I think of it as yeah. a road <laughs> <laughs> Kyle well, that was super interesting and also you made it sound so simple and easy but I have a feeling that. That was not the easiest thing to research. It was not. It, well, the Tesseract honestly was a fair. There's was fairly easy because of Carl Sagan. I'm gonna post a link to that video, but he's um he's amazing. He's a treasure. He was a treasure before he died. I'm so glad that there's videos of him explaining mm-hmm. physics uh, for dummies essentially. <laughs> I was out say for dum dums. <laughs> I tried to look up more Einstein Rosenbridge stuff and quantum entanglement. Because uh, quantum entanglement, I think, is interesting because it kind of pertains to Madeline's book, but it was not really a thing when she wrote it. But it is a thing now. They mention it in the and movie, and they right? mention it in the movie. And the idea is that you have these two particles, um, an electron and a positron, that become entangled, and you can stretch them over vast distances, light years even. Um, and if you f- if you do uh, if you flip one into an up position. The other will always instantaneously go into a down position. So they're linked through something that we don't really quite understand is how they explain it in the movie. And they kind of use that as an amalgam for, you know, love knows no bounds and can travel vast distances. And they do that in Interstellar as well. They just don't call it quantum entanglement. In this movie, they actually call it quantum entanglement. Um, But that's not exactly what that is either. I don't know. It's very confusing. (laughs) Yeah. Man, it makes me wish I had enjoyed my physics class in high school. 
Yeah, I've always liked physics, but I always felt like I was too dumb to really yeah. get into it, you know, because it is it is very mind boggling, and I still I still like it. I'm not a scientist; I just play one on this podcast. Yeah, well, you have me fooled, Kyle. Well, I'm gonna go into something a lot less uh, technical. I guess is the word. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna <laughs> start by us. talking about Madeline Alingle, who I just think is fantastic. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Certainly is, Claire. Um, So as a young girl, she said she didn't fit in at school. Her parents were mostly absent. Uh, Classmates and teachers called her stupid. And she lived in her interior dream world. Later in her novels, they seem to center around teenage girls who didn't fit in. And I think she captures it really well. Wrinkle in Time is the only one of her books that I've read. But I, that teenage girl who just can't quite... Meg doesn't fit in. Meg, me, no matter what, even if she has the best intention, she can't yeah, do it. Yeah. She, she captures that feeling. But she grew out of it. She ended up going to Smith College, edited the Smith College Monthly, published short stories in magazines, and ended up graduating with honors. So she wasn't so stupid. Yay. Obviously. Obviously, yeah. After college, she moved to New York City, published two of her novels, each within a year of each other, acted for a stint, and fell in love and married Hugh Franklin, who would later become famous for playing Dr. Charles Tyler in All My Children. Really? Yeah, I don't know All My Children. I don't know All My Children But apparently he was a big deal. She was married to a soap star. Yeah, they met acting, I think, in the cherry orchard or something like that. (laughs) So it seems like her life is all together. She has kids, the family, but she felt like her 30s were a failure. Uh, she kept on submitting her books to be published to publishing houses, uh, to publishing houses, obviously. Yeah. And she kept on getting rejected. She talks about how you could basically paper her walls with the rejection slips that she got and how her ego was so tied up in it and how she felt that she wasn't being the best mom that she could be. And then she wasn't even bringing in income for her family because yeah. she was working on this thing that wasn't making money. When she was 41, she went on a cross-country road trip with her family, and they drove through Arizona's Painted Desert. And I've been to Arizona, but I haven't been to the Painted Desert, but I really want to go. And three names popped into her head, Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which. She had also been reading the works of some physicists, Arthur Eddington, Max Planck, and Albert Einstein. So Max Planck and Albert Einstein were the two ones—not two, but Max Planck actually has a theorem that is all about kind of quantum entanglement and how particles and waveforms function that was part of what I cut out because I didn't understand it. (laughs) So that's really funny. Well, he inspired this book, and she was really interested in the theory of uh, relativity— and she wrote Wrinkle in Time. It was rejected by publishers 26 times. Oh, my goodness. Finally, she sent it to one of the most prestigious publishing houses, Farr, Strauss, and Grosjeu, I think it's pronounced. And John Farr liked it. So he published it, but he did tell her not to be disappointed if it didn't sell well. It was printed in 1962, and he was wrong. It was an instant hit, sold bonkers copies, was widely praised, and won the Newbery Medal, which is the most important award in children's literature. There's actually a story that I read that on the night that the medal was presented, an editor who had rejected the book drunkenly went into the bathroom and sobbed about how she'd rejected that book. Really? Well, it, That might be just like a— yeah. 
myth. It ta- I feel like it tapped into that vein. There wasn't a lot of YA stuff back then, and it, I feel like it really well, helped. Well, I'm going to talk about that, that in a genre. second, but there also wasn't a lot of sci-fi written for girls or well-written sci-fi. Yeah. And, you know, there might have been well-written sci-fi, but it hadn't been marketed for young people in the way that this book was. Yeah. Um, since then, it has sold over 16 million copies in 40 languages, and Madeleine Lingle went on to publish about a book a year for the next 40 years, including A Wrinkle in Time. I think it's a trilogy, right? Uh, it's a tetralogy. I think there's five books in the original story, but then there's a bunch of other books that have to do with it. It's like the same world. I've only ever read the first one. Um, and on the other side, it's also one of the most frequently banned American books. I know. I read that, too. I was shocked. Yeah. Secular critics say it's too religious, though I don't think they're necessarily banning it. And a lot of conservative Christian—not a lot of conservative uh, Christians, a lot of conservative critics said, especially at the time, that the book promoted witchcraft, which Harry Potter has also been accused of. <laughs> um, and in one passage, Jesus is compared to Shakespeare, Einstein, and Buddha. That was the problem they had with it. Which is bizarre because Ma- Madeleine Langle is actually, she's kind of C.S. Lewis-esque in that she's... She's, she's a devout ver- Christian. She's a devout Christian. She's a yeah. Episcopal. And she never really understood why other Christians didn't like her book. I mean, it is a lot about God. It's and a lot about God, yeah. And being a good yeah. person. And like and the light versus the dark. Exactly. But eventually she accepted that the criticism actually made the book sell better. So it was a blessing in disguise. Any press is good press, is what they say, isn't it? (laughs) That is what they say. At the time, we were talking about how this was new uh, for young adult literature. Science fiction written by a woman aimed at women, young women, was a rarity. I feel like it was probably one of the first, if not the first, science fiction book aimed at young women. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't see anything prior to that. Yeah. But it was definitely, well, Frankenstein, I don't know if that was aimed, aimed at young, at young women. women. <laughs> okay. But the, the genre was thought as as like a trashy comic book pulp yeah, thing like that Westerns. was written for errant young men who couldn't concentrate in school. They read those comics with yeah. the sci-fi. You shoot the aliens with the ray gun and you save the girl in the miniskirt or whatever. Exactly. And also, at this time, science wasn't really considered a suitable pursuit for girls. And here was this character who was a math genius, whose mother was a math genius, eventually wins the Nobel Prize in the series, and it was okay. Yeah. She's smarter than the men around her, and she succeeds where the men around her can't. And you you look you kind of take that for granted now, but looking back, that was a huge deal. Definitely. It was also a hit with both girls and boys. So boys were willing to read about a girl. Yeah. I read so many articles that said there would be no Hermione, no Katniss, no Buffy, no Triss from Divergent if it wasn't for Meg. I could but I believe that. She pioneered it. Also, as far as the young adult genre goes, the young adult genre is really given credit for starting off with Judy Bloom in the 70s. But Wrinkle in Time gets some credit for opening up the sci-fi world to young adult books. Um, that and The Phantom Tollbooth were considered the I first sci-fi fantasy-esque yeah. science fiction books, yeah. which is one of my favorite things to read ever. So thank you, Wrinkle in Time. Thanks, Madeline Langle. Let's switch gears and talk about Ava DuVernay. She grew up in Compton and went to UCLA. I had so many problems pronouncing that (laughs) name. And she majored there in African-American studies and English. 
She thought she was going to study journalism and become a journalist, but I just think this is funny. After an internship where she had to go through the trash of a juror in the OJ trial, she changed her mind and went into <laughs> film publicity. <laughs> that would change my yeah, mind, too. That could, that could, depending on what you found, that could definitely change your mind. <laughs> just in general, the degradation of it. Yeah. You I'm go dig through, through trash. Yeah, I'm going through someone's trash, and this is journalism. Working my way up from the bottom. <laughs> Well, she kind of did in her film publicity career. She eventually launched her own firm, DuVernay Agency, and consulted on movies like Spy Kids and Collateral. I loved Spy Kids. Well, that's a strong word. I enjoyed Spy Kids. I liked it a lot at the time. She said she wanted to make movies, but she figured she wouldn't be given the opportunity as an African-American woman to do so, so she created them herself. In 2008, she released the documentary This Is Life about the underground hip-hop scene at L.A.'s Good Life Cafe. She then released the documentary My Mike Sounds about female MCs in 2010. Then she used the money she'd been saving to make a feature film called I Will Follow, which is about a woman grieving about the death of her aunt. Then what really put her on the map was that she made Middle of Nowhere, and she got in a directing award for U.S. drama at the 2012 Sundance Festival. I remember hearing about this movie and what a fresh new director she was, and it was one of those must-see at a Sundance movies that, of course, I didn't see because I just (laughs) never see everything I want to. So many movies out there. So this really jump-started her directing career. It starred David Oyelowo, who was trying to make a Martin Luther King movie with himself as the lead. He, at the time, was in Lee Daniels' The Butler. And do you know who else was in Lee Daniels' The Butler? No. She's pretty famous. Her name's Oprah. Oh, yes. She is very famous, isn't she? (laughs) She's very famous. So he got Oprah to see Middle of Nowhere. And Oprah said she was just so impressed, wanted to meet this person who made this movie. Eventually, Oprah co-produced and co-starred in Selma, which DuVernay directed. Yeah, that was the first time I'd ever heard her name was was with Selma. And it was like a big deal because they didn't give her a nom for Best Director exactly. at the Oscars. People were pretty pissed about I, that. That was the Oscars is so white year, wasn't I it? I think that was, yeah. Yeah, and I had heard the middle of nowhere, but I didn't connect that she was the person who did that when she released Selma. So she makes that movie. It does very well. Uh, It's very highly praised critically. She gets on the shortlist for Black Panther, which she passed on. I think I might have touched on this in our Black Panther segment. Yeah, she wasn't really a fan of the Marvel way. Gotcha, yeah. Which is fair. If you know that you can't work with that, then you should definitely pass. Yeah, Patty Jenkins passed. So did uh, Edgar Wright, both really talented people. So Now, Netflix came to her and said she could make whatever she wanted. And so she made a film about incarceration. incarceration. Uh, it's called The 13th, and it's about viewing the prison industrial complex through race. No, been... I, I did see that movie. Oh, yeah? yeah. Is it good? Um, It's interesting. Uh. I know it received high critical praise. Yeah. I felt I thought it was it was not what I thought it was going to be, but it was it was interesting. Now, I think right around when she was making the 13th, she got a call from Disney basically offering her the wrinkle in time. Now, Tendo Nagenda, who's one of the only black executives at Disney, had seen Selma and thought that she would be perfect to do wrinkle in time. Apparently, they were also talking to some other big directors. Tim Burton was on the short list really? for Wrinkle in Time. I can I, totally yeah, I can see, see why you yeah. would put Tim Burton in that role. Yeah. 
weird, disjointed sci-fi. Yeah, definitely. Please. It kind of bizarre screams world. Tim Burton. But they eventually really focused in on DuVernay, maybe because she was a woman and they really wanted a female voice to go with the story, which I think there sh- it should be a female De- director. Definitely. I think that was a good call. Um, and uh, apparently Tendo kept on nagging her and saying, imagine the world you could create. You could do whatever you wanted. You can make all these different planets. So she finally, apparently in one set, uh, sitting, read the book, the graphic novel, and the script. And then she called Disney because she knew she had to do it after doing all of that. She is the fourth woman to direct a movie with a budget over $100 million and is the first woman of color to direct a movie with a budget of over $100 million. And Trailblazing. Appar- oh, completely. And while making Wrinkle in Time, she was filming and producing Queen Sugar, a family dra- uh, drama for the OWN network or Oprah's network. Oh, okay. So she is working all the time. Yeah. Also, I think her father recently passed away, and so she says bearing herself in work has been a way just to not deal with it. <laughs> the script is by Frozen's Jennifer Lee. And she said she wanted to take Elingle's intention from the novel and update it for contemporary audiences. And both she and DuVernay wanted the script to be slow so that the audience could work out what was going on as it went, make it more of a visual thing than something that was being told to you. Yeah. They say the movie is made for 8 to 12-year-olds, and she wants them to have the same experience that she had when seeing The NeverEnding Story and Escape from Witch Mountain, where she was just so awed by these worlds and the movie that she saw. Escape from Witch Mountain was awesome. I by the way. I, I know I saw Escape from Witch Mountain, but I can't remember a lick of it. Oh, yeah. There are kids escaping to Witch Mountain. <laughs> I remember NeverEnding Story. I don't remember story. everything about it, but I remember loving it. NeverEnding Story was great, too. She said she wanted to make a film about the underdog, and she really wanted to do this film because she wanted to say something about being the light in your own life. As far as casting goes, I just want to touch on it because it is something that's very different and not done all the time. It was very important for DuVernay to cast a biracial girl and have a diverse cast. She wanted to show the world as it is. And I was just watching some movie trailers earlier tonight. They're not diverse. Yeah. It it actually is a thing that this cast is every color. Yeah. And um, I was also reading articles about how this movie was a risk for Disney. It's not a franchise film. It doesn't have backlogs of material that audiences are already familiar with. And so they're coming to see this movie that they already know every character in it. Yeah. And if you think about other movies that Disney has released that don't have a built-in audience, I mean, you could say that Wrinkle has the book, but I I, I don't think it has the Marvel audience or the Star Wars audience. Definitely That Disney has been making a lot of its movies thinking of these people and knowing that they're going to come and see them. Yeah, no, that's true. I was thinking of movies that aren't franchises in the Disney canon that came out within the year and Coco was really the only one I could think of. Yeah, but uh, to me that is a franchise because it's a it's Pixar. Pixar. So you see anything with the Pixar logo, you're like, oh, it's Pixar. Guys, if you know other Disney movies that aren't franchises, please let us know. They came out in the last year. Within yeah, last year. I know Frozen wasn't a franchise. But uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, I mean, was, Disney, it wasn't. It wasn't. Disney is the Disney franchise. Disney Princess is the, yeah, it's the, <laughs> it's a franchise. So how is it done? Was this risk worth it? Uh, it made $33 million on its opening weekend and about $42 million worldwide. Keep in mind that it was made for over $100 million. It has a 42% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, a B cinema score. However, women under 25 gave the film an A-. 
Articles I was reading said it might be able to recoup the money. Disney released it around this time to take advantage of spring break, and apparently they're really aiming it towards kids, kids not yeah. necessarily adults. However, one record that was broken is that for the first time, two large budget films by black directors have been in the number one and number two box office spots. Oh, because wow. Because Black, black Panther. Panther was number one. Yeah. And Wrinkle in Time was number two. So did we enjoy it? Well, I'm going to say I did not think it was a good movie, but I did enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> as weird as that is to say. Um, I definitely cringed a lot at some of the lines and acting. And But if you were 12, would you have cared? I think if I was 12, I wouldn't have cared. And it was very magical. I'll give it that. I was caught up in it, for, even though I knew like what was going to happen because I'd read this book. And um, and some of the delivery wasn't very good. But I, I did still enjoy it. What about you? Yeah, I didn't dislike it. I thought it lost steam as the movie went on. Yeah, I definitely see that. I was sitting by a granny with her, I think, daughter or daughter-in-law and grandkids. And she seemed to really be feeling it. Really? <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. The messages about love that are throughout yeah, the movie, yeah. I could hear her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it it is very clunky in the way a lot of like the lines are delivered are a little on the nose, but it's a kids movie too. I kept telling myself that. Yeah. What made me kind of sad about it though, especially after rereading Wrinkle in Time, is that Wrinkle in Time is a very smart book. That's a really smart book. But it, it was popular. Kids loved it. And I feel like this movie was dumbed down. And I saw in my research that uh, Jennifer Lee, the writer, wanted to make it more contemporary for ch- uh, for young audiences, which I understand. But I feel like they instead dumbed it down more than made it more contemporary. Yeah, I, I definitely see that as well. Because rereading this book, I read it as a kid and I remember enjoying it. Rereading it as an adult, I kept thinking like, wow, how did I understand a lot of this as a kid? I probably didn't. I still enjoyed it. But read, I, I was thinking reading this as an adult, I was like, wow, YA lit back in the day in the 60s. Like, this is this is some pretty heady stuff. It's very heady. I finished that book today before we recorded and thought that it was just wonderful and that everyone should read this book. Oh, it, it's it's just amazing. Yeah, it is. It's a really good read. And it's quick, too. Mm-hmm. It's a little slow in the start. I'm going to warn you. Get a slow little... Yeah. But, you know, it's, a, for, it's like, I feel like for 50, 60 pages and then, I, and then it, I, just, and then it rolls. And then it rolls, yeah. Yeah. What I also thought the movie was missing and or what didn't help it was that in the book she's taking on ideas like communism and conformity. And this is the 60s, granted, but why it's bad and why being an individual is important. And it's not the 60s anymore. It's 2018, right? Yeah, it is. Definitely 2018. I get confused sometimes. And I didn't mean that sarcastically either. (laughs) You have to think of it's 2017 or 2018. And communism isn't the threat that we thought it was in the 60s. So you're not necessarily injecting that idea that communism and conformity is bad in the same way. However, parts in the book where they're dealing with conformity are genuinely chilling. And they use some of those same shots in the movie. However, it doesn't have that underlying message about being an individual in the same way. Yeah. No, I agree. Like when they first get to Kamazots. 
mm-hmm. in, in the movie. They try and use that, it's, but it lacks. It's in the trailer where all the kids, the kids are, are bouncing, bouncing the, the ball. balls at the same time. But it does lack kind of the weight of the message behind it. One thing I found interesting about this book was that the editors made her take out a couple a couple pages where she Madeline Langle was talking about how you know the kids are like well why do people give away their individuality and and they talk you know they talk about communism in the book but she also mentions that was later edited out the editors made her get rid of it that people in democratic societies who get really really afraid will oftentimes turn towards totalitarianism <laughs> and they were like nope take that out you can't oh, have that, that. Would be but that's resonant now i feel like re- relevant now yeah 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 that really is it's such a smart book and it is smart lady i also thought again reading about duvernay this wasn't a movie that she wrote and i do believe that she is passionate about her message and what she wants to other people to see and you can see that her message of love and loving yourself is obviously comes through in the film but I don't know if this is her passion in the way that other films have been her passion there's a lot in the movie that deals with the main character's hair and how it's not she doesn't think it's pretty and I think that was a very important message for DuVernay to say however I feel like that came across more strongly than a lot than a lot of the plot yeah that that's true and it's not that those messages aren't important I fully support them being there but it felt like the messages that she wanted to get through took a front seat to actual storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. I mean, you're right. The story was extremely watered down in the movie because, like we said, the book it gets pretty heady and, like, gets pretty gritty. Um, so, I don't know. I, I still did enjoy it, though, weirdly enough. Yeah, I didn't dislike it. It was fine. I, I would have loved and appreciated, even if it hadn't been as good if they were really trying to take on the heady science. Yeah. And that they trusted that kids would just come with them. Yeah, yeah. Would go would would roll with it. I don't I felt like there was a thing where Alingle trusted the children. Or maybe again she's not she doesn't have a hundred million dollars a hundred million yeah, hundred million dollars at stake. Yeah. So she can just write this book and trust that kids will enjoy the science. And I understand Disney's fear that maybe if it's too heady the kids won't like it. But I wish that they had thought that oh children are smart and that children can follow this this, and we can do this in an intelligent way and it's not that it's not hard to do that yeah i I am reading wrinkle in time i think how do they ever think that this could be a movie i know it's it's weird i i thought it would be better as an animated movie i thought the same thing when i was rereading after i'd watched the movie and was rereading the book i was like this would be better as an animated thing or it's like a like a studio ghibli yeah, would, that would be amazing. I think well, Disney I like. could do a really good, car- you know, Frozen-type yeah. cartoon or Pixar. Sure yeah. Pixar would nail it. Yeah. It has those Pixar themes of love and family. It does, and love and family. Overcoming adversity. There's no bounds. <laughs> What'd you think of um, any actors that you liked in it or—, or- I think you talked about Michael Pena. I, I thought liked, he was I, great. Yeah, he's only in it for a hot second, unfortunately. I thought Oprah was very well cast. Yeah, I wasn't so sold on Oprah, honestly. I was like, eh, I mean, she's oh, saying her lines. I thought for the status that her character has. Yeah, that's has, true. The status, there's no one else you can true. get to play with that this status. Is I'm yeah. trying to think of any other person that could come in and have that quality. Of the of Mrs. Witch, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. What's It, 
the only one who I feel like the one who had to do the most work was Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. I also think you can see her working so hard. Yeah, yeah. She was. I, I thought she did a good job. Oh, I mean, it's not that she. I thought it was okay. I feel like you see how hard she's acting. Yeah. It does. It's not a natural thing that she's doing. Yeah. You yeah. know, and uh, she's carrying everyone around her because she's working with child actors and this she's is saying true. these ridiculous lines, and she's trying so hard to make it believable. <laughs> Also, those characters, when described in the book, are described as the most beautiful beings that Meg has ever seen. Yeah. They, and they aren't, they're old women at points, and then they transform into different forms. And every time she just, every transformation, she gets a better sense of how beautiful they are. Yeah. And I don't know how you would ever do that in a movie. That's, it'd, be, it'd be extremely difficult. So we did something interesting with this also because both Claire and I received this book as children from our mothers. So Yeah, we thought it would be nice to shout out our moms and we asked them how they discovered the book. Yeah. And yeah. then why they gave it to us. Is that what you asked your mom? I asked my mom a couple questions. Why don't you go first? With, okay. With I, I, my, my question was simpler to my mother. I'm sorry, Mom. I didn't put the time in. <laughs> so she said, Nancy, her older sister, who was about eight years older, gave it to me when I was around 10 or 11. That had to be right a few years after the book came out. Yeah. Uh, Nancy was at college at UC Berkeley, and she had heard it was a good book. I really don't remember the story well, but I did remember liking it very much. When I was young, I loved fantasy. Even if some of the books I read may have been more in the realm of science fiction, I thought of them as fantasy. When you were little, I knew you liked fantasy, and I thought that you would like it. And she read it to me. And then I reread it later when I was older. Okay. Oh, that's so cute. It is Your cute. mom's sister gave it to her. Right. Yeah, my mom, I remember being in Uncle Pete's room, we called it, at my grandma's house, who's my mom's youngest brother, and I was bored out of my mind about what to do. It was the summer, and she was like, here, read this book. And it was this old paperback, and it was A Wrinkle in Time. And I never, like, really thought about where she got it. So, I'm actually, I'm really glad we did this. So, I asked her, you know, where she found the book and if her friends read it and, and if it was kind of a big deal when she was a kid. Uh, and this is what she sent to me. She says, actually, I found it in the, in the library. I used to walk to the library and come out with about 10 science fiction fantasy books every two weeks. I got through most of the science fiction section at the Aspen Hill Library over time. It was a long, long time ago in the 60s, 70s, but I remember really enjoying A Wrinkle in Time and read it several times. I don't know that it started me on the science fiction kick that was probably Star Trek, but it was a great read and well-written. <laughs> I'm worried that the movie probably doesn't do the book justice, as is usually the case. <laughs> My mom thinks the same way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we both think the same <laughs> yeah. way, too. Um, back when I started reading science fiction in the 60s, and especially in my age range, it was not common for girls, so as far as like reading science fiction. So I didn't talk about it much with my friends. They were into horses, the Bobsy twins, and fluffy animals. I was into ray guns, swords, frogs, and time travel. I wouldn't say it was one of the hot books as a kid, but as fantasy and science fiction became more acceptable, I think it was discovered by the next generation of youthful readers and became more popular. I think Tolkien had a lot to do with the genre becoming cool and more people starting to read these types of books. I think Grandma, uh, her mom, thought I was a little nuts, uh, but I was reading a lot and doing well in school, so she couldn't complain too much. My memories of the plot are fuzzy, but I do remember liking the way they describe the Tesseract as a piece of cloth sort of bunched up and to the two time periods being the part that touched. 
Pretty simple way to describe it. I remember liking the lead female girl in the story, of course. Aww. Yeah, I thought yeah, that was really that's sweet. that's really sweet. That fits in with that there wasn't a lot of women reading science fantasy it, and it wasn't aimed for them yeah, at the time. Yeah, and it also fits in with the, what you were saying about the movie. Like maybe if they did that risk and, and made it a little smarter, that there were there were kids out there who were going to like ride with it and, and really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, in the way that like... Langle wrote this book and like our moms there wasn't a lot you know they were kids and there wasn't a lot of science fiction out there but they it was a complicated story but they rode with it they liked it yeah you know maybe they maybe they should have made the movie more complicated and closer to the book I don't know so we recommend the book for sure the book for sure for anyone yes it's quick and it's good I actually gave it as a gift to my boyfriend's niece Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Well, her dad said she wanted – she's into dolls, but he wants her to read more. So get her a book. So I got her both because I want her to like me. (laughs) Got to be the cool aunt. I try. Um, But I figured A Wrinkle in Time was good because she's a strong, very strong girl and it's a strong female character. And also the movie was coming out, so maybe it would entice her to read the book if she knew she could see the movie or had seen the movie and then wanted to read the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I recommend it for, that's my tangent on, yes, everyone should read this girl or boy, any age, maybe over six. Yeah, over six, seven, eight. I think my mom read it to me when I was around seven, eight. Yeah, so I think so. You might not get all the concepts, but you, you understand. But you still the, un- enjoy the it. The overall arc. Yeah. And you understand that love conquers all. Good versus evil, light versus dark. Yes. <laughs> and the movie, I guess for uh, girls ages Eight through twelve, children. Girls or boys, children yeah. Eight through twelve. I feel like if you want to, if you're trying to get your kid out of the house, out of your hair for a second, send them to see this movie. It's pretty unoffensive and it is entertaining. It's very entertaining. It has a good message. Yeah, definitely. And shout out to our moms. Mom, thanks so much Who, for sending giving that me to these me. books. Yeah. Yeah. And we wish this could be our Mother's Day episode, but timing-wise, it just didn't yeah, work out. Yeah, it just out. didn't work out. But this book helped push me towards science fiction and fantasy, so thanks, Mom. Thanks, Mom. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm Kyle Willoughby. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsripodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRA Podcast. I can be found at, along with Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. I can be found at Clex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. And you can find our producer James at James Fowey Jr., that's James Fowey, F-O-U-H-E-Y, J-R, on Twitter. You can learn more about Tesseracts and Madeleine Lingle and Ava DuVernay. DuVernay. And I'm actually going to post some of my uh, quantum entanglement stuff on there just because I think it's really and cool. And some pictures, right? Yeah, and, us, a, and a picture. For us who need visuals a 3D, to understand. 3D models of what a fourth dimensional hypercube would look like to us. So we'll post that on our Twitter page and our Facebook page. Our producer, who really likes conformity and reminds me a bit of a brain just you know suspended lifelessly is james foey he's suspended lifelessly out there right now yeah our logo is done by patty highland who reminds me of meg yes patty you are the best way not in the not because she's not because she's volatile and ready to throw down (laughs) 
Not at all. <laughs> and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who I think may have seen a Tesseract. He may. He might be fourth dimensional. We're not sure. We're not sure. Once again, this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.